Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We're the Walgamoth family. I'm Mitch. I'm Cindy. I'm Maisie. And this is Ruby. And here is a blessing from our family to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Have Have a a great great Sunday. All right, well, welcome everybody. If, you, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in Numbers, and, and we say that, that's the ironic blessing from Numbers, the first part of the book, because this whole journey through Numbers is essentially the people of God forgetting that God is good and forgetting that God provides. And so every time they got together, they got together, they said those words. So all summer long, we have different families getting before us and saying those words. This is why God is good. Because we so easily forget that God is good. And we've been looking through the things that cost us our ability to see the goodness of God from complaining to fear to today. We're going to talk about comparison in chapter 16. But before we get there, we're going to do what we do each and every Sunday at Crossroads. We live in a very critical culture. We live in a culture of comparison and complaint. And so we come here this morning and put that aside and recognize God has called us to something different recognize that we come here and say, God, what do you have for me this morning? Where are you guiding me, teaching me, informing me? So we're going to start just by preparing our hearts as we have been doing. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'll ask that you say a prayer that the Spirit might teach you this morning. And I ask you to say a prayer that God might use the preparation to go forward to form our community into the ways of Jesus. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here, that we can stop down and recognize that you're good. As we open some scripture and talk about number 16, the Holy Spirit guide us this morning. Convict us and encourage us and lead us in the way of Jesus, the way of life. I ask you just take a few seconds and say a silent prayer and, and just invite and ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and speak to you this morning. But as you say a prayer for me, that God might use the preparation and the scriptures to impact our community today as we learn to live more like Jesus. Probably sings in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Hey, man, if you got a Bible, we're in number 16. I'm willing to bet for most of us, this might be the first time we've flipped to this chapter, the rebellion of Korah. And if you've been there before, you, you are a Bible all-star, everybody. Today is about comparison. There's a quote that's pretty popular when we talk about comparison. It's by Teddy Roosevelt, and he says, comparison is the thief of, not on, there it is, comparison is the thief of, you know what? All right, I guess it's not that popular. That's just me. Comparison is the chief of joy. 
So what happens is as we start comparing what we have to what we don't have, we lose joy in what we do have. Let me give you an example. My wife and I just moved to the Highland Village. I know. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah. Um, Our first apartment in the design district in Dallas was 600 square feet of awesome. And we were married for two years. And we decided if we want to be married for two more, we needed more space. And so we moved from there and got another apartment, and it was 720 square feet. I mean, we did not know what to do with ourselves. And then we moved into our first house a few years ago with the kid and moved up to like 1,400 square feet in East Dallas. But all these things had one thing in common. No matter where you were in the house, you could hear my voice, okay? (laughs) No matter where you were, you could hear each other. And then we recently bought a house and moved into about 2,500 square feet in Highland Village because you move to the suburbs, you get more land, right? Here's the deal. For months, for months we looked online. And we zillowed things, and we zillowed things, and we zillowed things. It's a pastime now. We looked at floor plans, and we're renting the kitchen a little bit. And, man, we love our house. We love our house. We couldn't be happier. But you know the problem? The Zillow emails keep coming, and I keep opening them. (laughs) Yesterday, they were like, hey, Charlie, here's 10 homes you might love. And I was like, I do love those homes, but I love my house. But this house has a wet bar. You know, you have these things Where you come along and you're thinking, man, I really love this, but I don't. When we start to compare, we start to lose joy in what we have. It's this ideal that comparison comes at a cost. And it's not just us and my house and my family, it's us societally. There's a whole movement about Zillow houses and people spending more time looking at what they don't have instead of dwelling on what they do. Norway actually just passed a law this week, joined a law that France passed in 2007 that said, if you post an image that's been altered of a model or an ad, you have to put at the bottom, this image has been altered. You know why? Because for too long, people compared themselves to things that didn't really exist. Comparison's tough. And with social media, there has never been, we have never had an easier time to compare ourselves to others because it's all we see. And there's a cost to that. One of the costs that um, psychologists talk about is just simply the cost of depression. The prevalence of depression, this is one study, increased from 6.6% to 7.3% between the years uh, 2005 and 2015, with an even greater increase, 8.7% to 12.7% among those ages 12 to 17, meaning that the earlier we start to look at other things, the earlier we start to compare, the worse off we are, the less joyful we are. Comparison comes at a cost. Today's story, today's scripture, today's chapter is about the cost of comparison. But here's the deal. I think comparison comes at a cost. I think studies prove that. I think it is initially our joy. But as followers of Jesus, I think the cost of comparison is greater than just our joy. As followers of Jesus, I think the cost of comparison in our communities of faith costs us far more than just happiness. And that's what we're going to find out today. That's what we're going to talk about, and that's what we're going to see, because it's never been easier. It's never been easier to fall into the trap of comparison than right now. And if we don't look out for it, we got to know what's at stake. So open your Bibles to Numbers 16. And what you'll see in this chapter, it's really two stories kind of melded together with one theme. We have two groups. We have the Korites and we have the Reubenites. They're two factions of the Israelite community. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 that lay the context, and we'll break it up a little bit. Verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, son of Izar, and the son of Koath, and the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abraham, and and the sons of Eliab, and On, sons of... Peleth, who were Reubenites, 
took men and rebelled against Moses, along with some of the Israelites, 250 leaders of the community, chosen from the assembly, famous men. And they assembled against Moses and Aaron, saying to them, you take too much on yourselves, seeing that the whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the community of the Lord? We have two parties involved. We have Korah and we have the Reubenites. And so it starts with now Korah. And you're probably thinking, who is Korah? This is not a Sunday school chapter, everybody. And it says in the first verse, Korah is the son of Izar, the son of Koath, and the son of Levi. Thanks, that cleared it right up for all of us, you know? So when you really look at that list, the main thing you're focusing on is that last verse, that last word, actually. He's the son of Levi. It sets the tone for who he is. So Korah was in the tribe of Levi. Levi was the priest's. They were called to be set apart by God from the other 12 tribes to serve God and act as the intercessory, intermediary between the people of God and God himself. They had a call on their life to serve God. So when we start with who's the parties involved, we start with the people called by God. It actually says in Numbers 4, God is laying out the duties and responsibilities of the different parts of the priesthood. And it says in 4.4, this is the service of the Kohets in the tent of meeting where God dwelt, relating to the most holy things. Verse 15, it says, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when camp is ready to journey, then the Kohites will come to carry them. They were movers, but they were godly movers, right? So they packed up their tent and moved all the time for 40 years. They wandered. And it was this faction of the priest's job to carry the stuff. It was good work. It was holy work. They were called by God to a specific purpose. But they start by saying it's not enough for us. And then you have the Reubenites. And one thing to know about the Reubenites is that they were the firstborn among Jacob. In, in the ancient Near East culture and traveling even through the first century, the firstborn had more privileges than anyone else. The firstborn were blessed with more blessing than any of the other sons. They were looked up to as leaders, except for Reuben. Reuben hit a rough patch and made some decisions that caused him to miss his blessing. And in Genesis 49, his father Jacob gathers all his sons together, and he's about to give his blessing to his sons. And Reuben's like, this is my moment. This is where I shine. And he says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn. You're my might, my first sign of strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. And then he says, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. So going back to where the tribe started, Reuben got passed over for blessing. What we begin to see over generation and generation and generation is they really wanted more power than they had. They thought they deserved it. So here's our two parties. We have some second-class Levites, priests, that carry stuff, and we have Reubenites who didn't get the blessing they thought they deserved in the first place. And they come up against Moses, and they say in verses 2 and 3, they said, you take too much on yourself, talking about Moses, seeing the whole community is holy. And that phrase, you take too much on yourself, is kind of the core where they get in, where the Korites get in and say, Moses, I don't like what you've done. A couple things to note. One is if there's anybody that didn't take too much, it's Moses. <laughs> if you 
Remember the story. Moses didn't want to be here in the first place. God called Moses with a bush that was on fire but didn't, wasn't consumed, and then the bush started talking. That's a moment where if that happens in my life as a pastor, I'm listening to it, you know? And he says, Moses, you're going to go. And Moses said, talking bush, I'm not. You remember this? And so Moses said, I can't do it. I'm not enough. God said, I'm going to be with you. Moses said, can I take my brother? I mean, this guy had some insecurity issues. This guy did not want to go. This guy did not choose himself. Even in Numbers 10, when we read that story a few weeks ago, he says, God, I can't do this. I need help and leadership. I didn't choose this. I didn't birth this nation is the language that he uses. I don't want to be in the position I am in. And so Moses, in responding to Korah, when they said, you've taken too much power for yourself, he responds in verse 7 and 8, and he said, listen now, you sons of Levi. Does it seem too small a thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the community of Israel to bring him near to himself, to perform the service of the tabernacle to the Lord, and to stand before the community to minister to them. So here's the heart of our tension. Here's the heart of the comparison. He had a faction of people that wanted more power. Because they said, look at Moses. Look at all the power he has. I want that. That's hard. When we start to compare the first thing that goes away, when we start to compare the cost of our comparison is so often our own contentment with with what God has given us. God gave them a purpose and a job and it was good, but they couldn't help but looking at Moses saying, but I want that. In the middle of that, they lost the contentment with what God had given them. There's a, 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 a writer and he's a, Humus writer is Douglas Adams, and he, and he said in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, anyone who's able of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job, right? And that, that doesn't, it's not a commentary on anybody in office. It's essentially saying that those who desire most intensely the ability to wield power are also most likely not to wield it well, right? These guys saying, I want all the power, probably aren't the most responsible with power, They're saying, Moses, you have too much of it, and I want some of it. And then go to the Reubenites, if you go down to verse 12. They step in, and they lay their claim. And they say to Moses, it's a small thing. You have brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. Common theme in Numbers. What's interesting, though, is that they talk about Egypt, and they describe Egypt as the land flowing with milk and honey. (laughs) They, They completely lost the contentment of their freedom that God gave them. Because at this point, they'd forgotten all the hardship that was in Egypt, and they only remembered what they wanted to, even if it was a lie. And actually, Exodus 3, we see God starting to move towards them in Egypt. And God says to Moses, hey, I've seen the plight of my people at the hand of their taskmasters. But here, the Reubenites are coming up against Moses and saying, yeah, but really when I look at it, Egypt wasn't that bad. Comparison causes us to lose our contentment with what God has given us because they were free, and they were walking in it, and every single day, God provided. Every day, God gave them food. God led them with fire and water. Every single day, God sustained their life, but they couldn't see it, and they couldn't celebrate it, and they weren't content with it anymore because they couldn't help but compare it to something else. Comparison every single time costs us our contentment with what God has given us. And I wish, I wish I could tell you that doesn't happen in the church world. I wish I could tell you it didn't happen like with me, but it does. When we went online about a year and change ago, a year and a half ago or whatever it was when the COVID hit, because we weren't before, 
at that point, we had a podcast, and we were a solid 2002 technology church, you know. And something happened. We went online, and all of a sudden, we're online next to all these churches that had been online for like a decade and doing it really well, you know. And it was really, really hard for me, really hard for me not to spend most of my time looking at where I wanted to be and all the other churches and all the ways they did it well instead of what we were doing well. Last week, the family that came back, they'd been gone for a year because of COVID, and they said, man, we've been back for a couple weeks, and it's just been so incredibly good to be back in person. And then they looked at me, and they said, I can't tell you what a blessing it's been to watch online every week. It's done so well. And I said, it's not. Man, <laughs> how dare I in that moment? I said, thank you so much. That means a lot. We've tried really hard, <laughs> you know? Sure, we're not as as smooth as some others, and, and sure, we don't have all the camera angles and smoke behind me and, and cameras moving from the back to the front, you know, but God has given us good things. And we start to compare the first thing that costs us is our contentment with what God has given us. That's our joy, right? Same kind of thing. But, but it moves beyond that. It moves beyond just robbing us or costing us of our contentment when we fall into this trap of comparison. It also costs us our unity. So, If you look at verse 10, Moses continues, and he said, He brought you near, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. Do you now seek the priesthood also? So he transitions and says, Look, you don't like what you have, but what you're going to do is going to disrupt God's order of things in the first place. So comparison costs us contentment, but comparison also fundamentally costs us our unity. And they're charged against Moses to go back to verse 3. He said, seeing that the whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, why then do you exalt yourself above God? What they did there was they took a verse out of context from chapter 15. So last week in chapter 15, we had a riveting discussion on seven laws, right? That's been downloaded seven or eight times since then. That's how I know it was good. (laughs) And and in the middle of that, at the end, he says, you're going to wear some tassels. And he says, thus you will remember and obey all the commandments and be holy to your God. So they quoted that verse and said, Moses, if all of us are holy, why is your position above our position? Here's the problem is they took that text completely out of context. And we've said it before, but a text without context is a pretext for a proof text, which basically means I can pull a text out of context and make it say what I want it to say, right? I really, really in high school wouldn't have dunk a basketball, but I'm five foot nine and white. And so that was not going to happen for me, all right? But it didn't stop me every once in a while saying, hey, you know what? God says I can do all things, you know? Quote Philippians 4.13 and move right along instead of realizing that verse is found in the context of contentment, no matter if you have or don't have. That's what Paul's saying. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strengths. I can be content, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little is the context of that verse. So these people pull that right out of context. They said, we're just like you. And and on one hand, they were. They were part of the Israelite community that was supposed to model the goodness of God. But on the other hand, they didn't realize and recognize that God had given different people different positions. We would say it's ontologically equal but functionally different. That means that in their personhood, in their imago dei, in their, in their amount and worth and value to God, they were equal. But here's the truth. God gives different people different callings, different gifts because he's good and gracious. At CBC, we say everyone has a part to play. Not everybody can be a singer, even though everybody wants to be a singer, you know? I can't build things with my hands, even though I've tried again and again and again. Right now, yesterday, I had about 10 people at my house painting because my wife will not let me touch a paintbrush 
Because when I do, bad things happen. I, I roll walls. And she says, do you not see that that's different? And I said, no, it looks good enough. Let's move on, you know? It's the idea that they're saying, Moses, I want what you have. And so it disrupts the unity in their camp. And, and what happens when we start to compare is we fall into this subtle trap of entitlement. So it didn't just start out being something I wanted. It started out now being something that grew into something I deserved. Let me tell you something. In a gospel of grace, there's not a whole lot of room for entitlement because grace stipulates that I did nothing to earn, merit, or deserve in the first place. So these people come against Moses and they say, I'm just like you. I deserve everything that you have. And so when they begin this charge against Moses, when they begin saying that we're the same, Moses says, okay, I'll give you a test. So if you read at verse six and seven, he says, do this Korah, you and all your company take censures or basically um, incense burners, put fire in them and set incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses will be holy. You take too much on yourselves, you sons of Levi. He says the same thing back to him. You know why? Because essentially he's saying to them, we're going to have this thing and, and you're going to go light incense. And whomever is the one that God appointed, um, God will draw near to. And, and if you know the story of Numbers, this text comes at a high cost. In Numbers chapter 10, a couple of Aaron's sons burned incense at the wrong time in the wrong place and they died. And, and so Moses is literally saying, okay, if you want to do this, we, we can do this, but I'm telling you, it's not going to end well. And in their entitlement, they began to believe that they were the same and it's going to cost them in the end. That's why Moses says, you take on too much. You don't know what you're asking for. You're ignoring God's ordained order of things in your entitlement because you can't stop comparing. It's costing you your contentment and it's going to cost us our unity together as you usurp his order for how we function as a community. Saying, don't do it. And he says, we're going to come tomorrow, leaving space for them to call it off. Really, though, when we talk about what's happening, it's this bigger picture that these people aren't seeing clearly because they're not looking at the right things. So then you fast forward to, again, down a couple verses to the Reubenites, the other story happening right in front of us. And they go on and they tell Moses, do you want to make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you think you can blind these men? So it causes them to lose their contentment with where they were and how God leads them, and then it causes them to disrupt the unity in the camp. They look at Moses, and they said, are you making yourself a prince over us? That's what he was in Egypt, you know? They're hearkening right back to who he was in Egypt, saying, are you doing this again? And he wasn't. He actually left Egypt because he was standing up for his people. So they push that button in his confidence and say, are you trying to do this again? And then they say, you're trying to blind these men. And that word they're blind, literally, that phrase means to gouge their eyes out. Are you trying to take advantage of and rip off our people? See, when we start down that path of comparison, it oftentimes starts by taking away, stealing our, costing us our contentment. Then it moves into costing our unity if we let it grow. Because we believe what other people have, we deserve. And so when they talk about what's happening, they said, we haven't gotten into the land of Egypt, and that's your fault. 
That's your fault, and I can do it better, because I deserve to be in the land of Egypt. And here's what happens often when comparison robs us of contentment, moves into places where it takes away our unity, wells up in us this entitlement faction. What happens, what happens is we believe that we deserve, and we don't realize that we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. They sat there and looked at Moses and said, the reason we're not in the promised land is you. Reuben sent a spy into Canaan a couple chapters ago. That spy came back and said, these guys are too big, too fast, too strong. Let's run. That's why they're wandering. Reuben didn't stand up for the ways of God in the first place, but here's what happens. As they compare, as they believe, as they think that what they have, I deserve to have, what happens is they begin to believe that they're not part of the problem. They're part of the solution. It's like every divorce that I've talked to with people. It's all her fault. It's all his fault. Is it? It's when people talk about the evil in the world and they say, why can't God just get rid of all the evil? Where's he going to start with you? The idea that as we compare, we begin to believe that we are earned or owed or deserve something is a subtle play of pride in the middle of a gospel of grace. They started to believe that their problems were not their problems. They weren't culpable. It was Moses' fault. And that starts to break down the very fabric of their community's comparison. If left unchecked, will rob us. It will cost us our unity in our communities. But ultimately, what it does is it doesn't just cost us our contentment or our unity. What you're going to see in the end is comparison over time essentially will rot away and cost us the community itself. So let me summarize some of the story for us. Moses says to these guys, hey, you're going to take some, some lamps, essentially incense burners, and you're going to meet me here. And I'm going to meet you there. There's 250 of them, and, and we're going to see who God draws near to. And they present themselves at the tent of meeting, and God draws near to them. In verse 19, he says, when Korah assembled the whole community against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. Usually that's a space of blessing for the people of Israel. But verse 20 says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and it said, separate yourself from among this community that I may consume them in an instant. They realized, as they started to compare, they lost their contentment that brought forth unity, essentially that ends in division, and it's going to cost them their community. So as you keep reading in the text, I'll summarize again. Moses throws himself in front of God and says, don't kill everybody for the sins of a few, and God says, okay. And, and essentially, if you go down to verse 31 and 32, he says, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed them. So Korah and his followers, and the 250 of them died. Now look, I don't think God's going to kill us if we do a little comparison in our day-to-day life, but he, he's putting this story in here to show us the inevitable cost of comparison in the communities of faith. Because if we continue to exchange in the currency of comparison, we'll lose our contentment and we'll lose our unity, and then ultimately that only leads one place, division. Only leads one place. When you start to believe that you should have, or it's not enough, or it's not good enough, ultimately what happens is it steals away, it costs us the very community that God gave us in the first place. Comparison is far more, far more hurtful than just robbing us of joy. It takes the very communities God given us. And so sure, we can talk in big picture about what comparison costs us, but you know, I think the real tragedy here is in the greater context of the book of Numbers. Because the book of Numbers was, is a tragic book. It's a book that was supposed to be a triumph as God's people marched into the land that he was going to give us. As, as God's people 
started to fulfill their destiny to show the world that God was good. As, as God's people showed people a God that can provide and protect and, and, and showed people a God who ultimately brings blessing and redemption in that curse, Numbers was supposed to be a triumphant book, but the people kept failing. The people kept forgetting that God was good. People kept complaining and kept living in a fear and kept comparing themselves to each other or in the future, the Canaanites around them. And one by one, what happens when you start to compare? And the biggest travesty of them all is comparison doesn't just cost us our contentment and our unity and our community. Comparison in the end, it costs us our calling and it keeps us from living out God's purposes because they were no longer a people that reflected the goodness of God. That's hard. As people, as followers of Jesus, if we live in this space and continue to live in a way that just compares myself to everybody else, we will no longer be able to be used by God with what God has given us. If we're beholden to comparison, it's really hard to be a blessing with what we have. That's what they're missing out on in the whole part here. It's what they're not living into. And that's really the travesty in all of these stories of numbers is not just that they forget God and they're punished. It's that they forget God and they don't live into who God made them to be. If we become a people that continually compares, we will become a people that doesn't continually reflect God's goodness to others. And it's going to cost us a lot along the way, but the biggest thing it costs us is our witness of the goodness of God, our calling as followers of Jesus. What I love about this chapter is the juxtaposition. So it has the Korites and it has the Reubenites and it kind of tells similar stories. They got discontent and then it broke unity and then it caused division and they lost their community and really they didn't live into their calling. But then you have Moses in this whole thing. There's a juxtaposition all throughout this text where the people complained and then Moses did something. The people threatened Moses and Moses did something. And what you see, if anybody, if anybody had a grounds to complain, it's going to be Moses. You know that? That man put his life on the line again and again and again for his people, and his people never said thank you. If anybody had a right to get up in front of God and be like, I want new people, these guys are, fill in the blank, it's Moses. If anybody had a right to complain and to compare his people versus any other group of people, I'd say it would be Moses. But time and time again, when Moses' people are stuck in these rhythms of not recognizing God's goodness and providence, Moses doesn't fall into the same trap. He rises above and shows us what it's like to live out the calling of God and the people of God in the present moments. So let's track it down. In verse 3, they say, you have taken on too much. You've taken too much for yourself. You're greedy, and you're causing too much power to flow to you and your brethren. What is Moses' response in verse 4? He said, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face to the ground. So the first thing, they come at him with this charge. And the first thing Moses does is he prays. It's a humble response to a man who knows he needs grace. And you've got to keep in mind, These are his cousins that are telling him that. They're from the tribe of Levi like him. And then if you keep continuing on, in verse 16, God said, separate yourselves from among the community that I may consume them. So they they went along with this charge and they showed up to actually actually threaten Moses' leadership that God gave him in the first place. God gets angry because when you threaten God's ordained leadership, you threaten the character of God himself. And so he shows up and they showed up and they lose this battle and God says, that's it, they're all gonna die. And what does Moses do? He doesn't say, yeah, God, they should. That was a terrible decision they made. He gets in front of God in verse 22. 
Moses and Aaron threw themselves down with their faces on the ground and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all people, will you be angry with the whole community when only one man sins? And he saved a bunch of lives. He didn't compare to what could be. He simply said, God, I want to pray for my people. And then if you keep going forward in the text, the way it ends is really, really interesting to me. So all this happens, and the Korites get swallowed up, and, and the Reubenites die. There's 250 of them that pass away. And, and you think at that moment that the rest of the community of Israel would say, hey, Moses is our guy. We're going to trust Moses. We're going to trust God. Clearly God showed his power and his preference for Moses as our leader. But look at verse 41. They wake up the next morning these people. They wake up the next morning and they say to the whole community of the Israelites, they murmured against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the Lord's people. Okay, at this point, if I'm Moses, I'm out, right? At this point, if I'm Moses, I'm saying, you get what you deserve. I remember one time in, when I was a middle school pastor, <coughs> there was this little guy and um, he really liked to show off. He was a basketball player. Back in the day, I used to be one of those. And he kept talking a bunch of, he just talked a big game to me. He's like, Charlie, we should play one-on-one. And I said, I don't think it's a good idea. And, and he was like, Charlie, I think we should play. I think I could beat you. And I was like, uh, man, I promise, I promise you can't. So he gathered some friends, and they were all gathered around. And I said, well, fine, let's play. And so we started playing. So I start giving this kid some baskets, just because I don't want to embarrass him. I'm a Jesus follower and his pastor, Okay. <laughs> And so I like, I, I give him a bucket. And look, this kid, I was just, I'm, I was 24, I'm bigger, faster, stronger. If he got to be 24, he could probably beat me. It's just at this point, nature, right? I was going to win this basketball game. And he scores a couple baskets, and then he starts taunting me, taunting, taunting me in front of these other middle school kids. And I was like, this is not going to go well for you. So I score a couple baskets, and then he starts taunting me some more. And so in <coughs> my pride, I decide to show him exactly how much better I was than him. And for the rest of our little one-on-one match, he didn't get a shot off that hit the rim, right? And I embarrassed him in front of all of his friends, and I'm still a little proud of that. And so, (laughs) but at that point where I'm going with this is they woke up the next day and they said, Moses, how could you kill all these people? If I'm Moses in that moment, and God says, I'm going to kill them all, which he does. If I'm Moses, I'm saying, absolutely, I'm done. I'm saying, man, it could be so much better if we had other people. It could be so much better if we just started over. I'm going to start to compare what my new group will be like because they're not deserving of what I am, who I am, what you've given them. But he doesn't do that. Verse 45, the Lord spoke to Moses and he says, get away from this community so that I can consume them in an instant. They threw themselves down on their faces to the ground. I'm just going to read the next bit of the text because it's really beautiful. God says, I'm going to consume these people that are ungrateful. And Moses intercedes for them. And in verse 46, it starts, And Moses said to Aaron, Quick, take the incense burner and place burning coals on it from the altar. Lay incense on it and carry it among the people to purify them and make them right with the Lord. The Lord's anger is blazing against them. The plague had already begun. So, So God had started to judge his people. And he unleashed a plague in the middle of camp that was killing people because of what they deserved. That's a hard text, right? But in the middle of that, in the middle of that, Moses says, I don't want this to be how this ends. And he says, Aaron, pick up the incense rod and run out in the middle of them so that we might stop it. Verse 47, Aaron did as Moses told him and ran out among the people. 
The plague had already begun to strike down the people, but Aaron burned the incense and purified the people. 48, he stood between the dead and the living. The plague stopped. A couple things you have to know there. One is Aaron was a priest. He couldn't touch dead bodies without being defiled. That was a big deal. It's laid out in Leviticus. Aaron runs out into the middle of this field of people dying, and he says, I'm going to stop this from happening because I care for these people. He put his own defilement on the line for the people that defied against him. That's a beautiful moment. He literally, the picture states, he, he literally puts himself in between, stands in the middle of death and life for these people. It's a beautiful picture of what a mediator is what a priest is, what a pastor should be, what we should be to one another. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. Stands in the gap between life and death and says, I love you. I love you. Regardless of what you've done to me before. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do and the gospel says that he took on flesh and dwelt with us. And all the cost to him. Of what one writer says, it says the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. We've seen that. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to the advantage of themselves. That's the story this morning. Comparison causes us to disadvantage the community at the expense, at the, for the benefit of us. But Moses refuses to fall into that and time and time again stands up and says, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to reflect the ways of God in the middle of what God has given me. A beautiful picture of blessing in the middle of hard, hard chapter. So as we talk about the rebellion, as we talk about comparison, we want to be people that do what Moses did, not that do what the Israelites did. We want to be people that stand up for how God has called us to live and work and be and function, not people that cause that to crater because we think we want or deserve something else that somebody else has. Because comparison is toxic. It'll wreck your joy, your contentment, your unity, your community. But what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is use whatever God has given us to be a blessing to those around us. That's the Israelite people. That's what Moses did. I love the juxtaposition in this text between those that compare and those that don't. And so, walking away from here, <laughs> I think there's a couple points that we can take away. Uh, one, I just think that as a people, we take stock with where God has us and we celebrate it. We just celebrate it. It's God, thank you for giving me X, Y, and Z, this talent, this ability, this gift. And we stop comparing it to what God has given to others. And the best way to do that is not just to celebrate what God has given us, but we celebrate the ways God has blessed and given and gifted others too. So we might think that we want to be better at X, Y, and Z, but, but what we do to stop the comparison trap is we celebrate the gifting of others as we celebrate what God has given us. And then two, two, I'd simply say what the text talks about all the time is, man, we pray for people. We intercede. Because it's really hard to pray for somebody that you're comparing yourself against. It's really easy to lose the comparison trap when you're praying for those who you want to be like. And so we celebrate what God has given us, and we celebrate what God has given others, the talents and the abilities, and then we pray for them, just like Moses did time and time again. Because here's what we're supposed to be together as followers of Jesus. We are people that stand in the gap. 
in all walks of life, in all classes in society, in all places and spaces in this world, we point to the goodness that, that is God. We point to what God has given us. We point to and say, no matter where you are or what you have, God is still good. That's what Israel is supposed to do, and that's what comparison takes away. It takes away our witness and ability that says God is good no matter what. So whether I have one more day or whether I have a hundred more days or whether I have a big house or a small house or whether I have a small apartment or a pool in the suburbs, I'm going to sit here and say, how can I use what I have for the glory of God because I'm part of the family of God? Comparison takes that away from us. The cost is our calling. Let's be people that live into, that live up to what God has called us to be, reflectors of his glory and goodness each and every day. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm just thankful that you have given us so much. I'm thankful that you have called us to be a blessing wherever we're at with whatever you've given us. God, I, pr I pray against a spirit of comparison in the church, in our lives, in our families, on social media. I pray against it because it's not true and it breaks down our communities. It breaks down our contentment. It breaks down our unity. It breaks down our calling as followers of Jesus. So I pray that we, instead of comparing, celebrate what God has given us and what he's given others. That, that you might be glorified in our everyday because we stop comparing and start attributing the good things to a good God, that we might be a people that wherever we go, send the message that God is good, that he provides, that he sustains, that he protects, that God is worth following, and that ultimately he will deliver. It's the story of the people of God in the book of Numbers, and it's hopefully the story that we tell each and every day. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.